morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. Good to be with you. Cody, thanks for doing that. That was his first time doing announcements. Smooth as butter, brother. Smooth as butter. Hey, before we begin, I know they probably tried to come in here secretly, which is why they came in late. But guess who's over there? Adam and Cammy Green. Hey, guys. I saw you sneaking in late, trying to get in here inconspicuous, but it's great to have them back with us. Well, as Cody said, I'm not going to try to compete with a bunch of cute kids, but you got to realize that's hard as a pastor to go up after kids preach. Yes, I need to get closer to you, so I'm moving this up. If you have a Bible, turn over to the book of Revelation. As Cody said, if you're visiting with us, you are coming in at the, the very last of our sermon series on the book of Revelation. We've probably spent the majority of this year, probably about 25 messages in the book of Revelation. And today, we finish it up. If you don't have a Bible, you can use one that's in the pew back in front of you. I believe it's page 978. I mean, it's easy to find, right? It's the last chapter of the last book in the Bible, so go all the way to the end. Well, while you're turning there, let me read to you what I had taped on the front inside cover of my first real Bible as, as a Christian. What I mean by that is that I became a Christian in my junior year in high school, and I remember I'd, I was working as a bag boy at a commissary and saved up my money and, and bought myself a fancy, big, a New King James study Bible. I think it was called the Open Bible, and I loved that Bible. It was my favorite. It was, it was, as you can tell, I mean, this one's, it was beat up like this one, held together with duct tape and staples and stickers, and it was my Bible that I cherished. I learned God's Word reading it, and on the front flap of the inside cover, I had taped this quote to remind me daily of the treasure that I had just discovered in my life. Let me read that quote to you. This book contains, I don't remember where I got it, but I love it. This book contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrine is holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read this book to be wise, believe it to be saved, and practice it to be holy. This book contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. In this book, heaven is opened, and the fires of hell are quenched. Christ is its grand subject, and our good its design. This book should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. For this book is a mine of wealth, health to the soul, and a river of pleasure. It is given to you here in this life, will be opened at the judgment, and is established forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and condemn all who trifle with its contents. For this book is the word of Almighty God. This book is the Bible. And as I said, we literally come to the last words of this book, the Bible. As we studied last week, it, it ends with a beautiful vision where all is made new. The night is over, the new dawn begins, and what God has waiting for those who hope in him, the human language cannot properly describe. It was full of symbols, hyperbole, metaphors, and uh, imagination abounding because reality simply could not do it justice. The very last words of God to his people, as we'll read here in a moment, are reminiscent of the words that a parent 
says to their child, bursting with anticipation and excitement and desire as they are on their way to their vacation destination, are we there yet? Soon. Soon. Now, we might mean by soon, soon as in another 20 miles down the freeway, or soon, it's just off the next off-ramp, whatever the case might be, when we tell our children, soon, what we really are saying is, it's gonna be worth it. Just, just hold on. Be patient. You're gonna love it. Soon. Now, I frame it this way, not because I want to avoid the complexities of the fact that Jesus says he will be returning soon, and here we are being 2,000 years later. That's not why I'm saying it that way. I'm saying it that way is because I want to focus where Jesus puts the focus, not on the timeline of his return, but on our posture until he does. You see, Jesus knows that this vision will will stir our hearts, it will arrest our affections, it will bring in us a longing for a home we've never been to, and that's exactly what it's supposed to do. After all the struggle, the trials, the difficulty, the challenges, the heartbreak that his people will travel through in this life and in this world as we look forward to the new heavens and new earth and the new creation, we ask, are we there yet? How much longer? Soon. It'll be worth it. Be patient. Hold on. You're going to love it. Soon. In our passage this morning, it closes with three practical ways. We can hold on, we can be patient. More to the point, we can remain faithful and await this eternal new day that's coming. And those three practical tips, you don't have to write them down, we'll go through them. It's basically keep and honor his word. Number two, anticipate his reward. And number three, look forward to his return. With that being read, I hope you're at Revelation chapter two being said, would you stand with me as we read the last words of God's holy word. Revelation chapter 2. I'll be starting in verse 6. 22. Did I say 2? <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. 22. Starting in verse 6. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. And, and here the angel sums up the entire message of the book, right, in two words. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, Jesus says, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by its gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as I said, these are the, this is the final section of the book of Revelation. It is called uh, what's called the epilogue in our nomenclature today. We might call this the afterclip. It is the thing that comes after the main story that's full of juicy tidbits that tantalize us, wanting to know more. Five times as you pick up on it, Jesus says, I am coming soon, or something along the same lines. Now, he doesn't mean to imply immediately. There's a different Greek word for that. But when he says, I'm coming soon, he's simply saying that there is no unnecessary delay. When the moment is right, at that perfect time, not a second before, not a second later, he will make all things happen as we have read in this book. Similarly to his first coming in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, in the fullness of time, when things were just right, when all the factors necessary came together, when there was a shared culture, more importantly, a shared language because of the Greeks and the Romans and the Greco-Roman culture, and Greek was the lingua franca of the day. Everyone spoke Greek no matter what you came from. Similarly, today, we might say English is the lingua franca. Whether you've been in Africa or Europe or Asia or in the Americas, you can pretty much get by if you can speak English. When all the people knew the language of the day, which was Greek, when there was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, and the Roman infrastructure of the Roman roads spreading all throughout the then-known world, when there was peace to travel on the roads, a shared culture and a shared language, for the gospel to spread at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. At the right moment, he will come back again, not a second before, not a second later. But until then... Jesus knows, even with this amazing vision that he has given to us, to the churches, faithfulness can be hard. We've read this book. There are some hard things that his people must face. So he gives us three encouragements to remain faithful, to be able to grow in godly patience, to be able to endure and be, as he calls us, an overcomer. The first one is basically this, keep and honor his words. Do you notice that the opening words of verse 6, these words are trustworthy and true two times in two chapters. The Lord makes a point of saying, these words are trustworthy and true. You can base your life on them. We see it here, and then we saw it last week in chapter 21, verse 5, when he said, behold, I'm making all things new. You can bank your life on it. These words are trustworthy and true. That phrase, trustworthy and true, that is the banner God's people have waved over the word of God from the very beginning. And I know how outstanding that must be. If you are not a Christian, or maybe you're too familiar with it, if you are, that we are holding in our hands God's very word. 
And that's just not what we believe or think. That's what he says. As far back from Genesis to Revelation, he says this to us. Notice in Genesis chapter 1, as it starts, he says, And God said, right here, in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 1, God spoke all these words. In Deuteronomy, further on into the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy chapter 6 says these words, speaking out the very words that he gave to his people here in the beginning, these words shall be on your heart. Why? Well, Deuteronomy 32, 47. It is no empty word that I give you. These things are not just empty words. He says these are your very life. Sorry, should have put that on the screen before I kept going. In the prophetic or in the wisdom literature, Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words the prophetic literature says the same isaiah the prophet says the word of our god will stand forever in the gospels jesus says it himself man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of god matthew 24 35 heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away in the epistles it continues but the word of the lord remains forever 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. You get the point. These are the very words of God. Friends, if that just doesn't blow the lid off your mind, you're too familiar with your own faith. What we have is the greatest gift any people could have ever been, have gotten or received. The very words of God himself to us an anchor for our souls. I'll never forget my uh, Greek 2 professor telling me, he would say, Rick, always remember, always remember, and I've tried to teach you this as well here, let all theology be a lie and the grammar be true. Now, he wasn't saying theology was a corrupt system by any means. He was saying, do not bring your systems, your opinions, your preference to Scripture and read it onto Scripture but bring your opinions and your preferences and your theologies and have them pulled out of the text. God gave us his word in words. There's a grammar there. There's a, there's a construction there. There are phrases there. There are conjunctions there. There are contrastions there. There are metaphors there. Let your theology, your understanding, your worldview, worldview come from the text. Don't bring it to the text. Let your theology be a lie, he said, and the grammar be true. Get your understanding of who he is from his words. Not your opinions, not your preferences, not your culture, but from his word. That's the beauty of the word. Every one of us in this room can have access to it. If you know how to read, you can read the words of God. Revelation opens and closes. Remember that, chapter 1. Blessed are those who read the words. Blessed are those who hear the words. And here we have, blessed are those who keep the words of this book. Why? Well, it's like that poem, or excuse me, that quote I said. It's the traveler's map. It's the pilgrim's staff. It's the pilot's compass. It's the soldier's sword. It's the Christian's charter. This is the word of God. It unfolds reality to us. As we read God's word, guess what? It reads you. As you study God's word, it should be actually studying you. God's word transforms us, encourages us, challenges us, changes us. That 
that's the power of God's word, which is why God pronounces such a blessing on those who hear it, who read it, who obey it, and such severe judgment on those who would trifle with its contents. Do you see that? Verse 7. Don't disobey these words. Verse 10. Don't hide these words. Verses 18 to 20. Don't mess with these words. Don't take away from them. Don't add to them. Don't pull a Jefferson. Heard of the Jefferson Bible, haven't you? One of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, was so influenced by the rational, uh, rationalism of his day, he literally took a razor and cut out of the Bible all the miracles and any text that alluded to the divinity of Christ because no man could be God and miracles are impossible. He had a closed view of the universe. And that's what we have called the Jefferson Bible. He removed those things because Jesus is just a good moral teacher, nothing else. Don't take away from these words. Don't add to these words. Don't be like the Mormons who literally added entire books to the Bible and created an entirely different gospel, an entirely different Jesus, an entirely different salvation, an entirely different everything. Now, friends, you here in this church, you may not be as foolish as Jefferson or as brazen as the Mormons, but are you adding or taking away from God's words in your own ways? Are there things that you are bringing to the text that are not really there? Anyone ever said, well, God helps those who help themselves? Well, <laughs> that's not in there. Are we bringing to the text things we think are there, things we want to be there? Are we ignoring things that are clearly there, but we just don't like them? Friends, it's not the portions of God's word that you happen to enjoy and that you, therefore you should obey. But especially so those portions you don't agree with and you don't like because that's where God's truth is confronting you and your truths. Do we add or subtract from God's word? Not as foolish as Thomas Jefferson, maybe, at least in this area of his life, or as brazen as the Mormons, but do we do something similar? Are your feelings and experiences shaping God's word in your life or is God's word in your life shaping your feelings and experiences? That slight turn of phrase is all the difference in the world. Is how you feel and what you experience determine how you read this? Or is how you read this determine how you will feel and what you will experience? It's a radical distinction. What can you do this week to make sure you keep honoring the life imparting courage inspiring faith increasing word of god in your life what can you do this week read it yes memorize it yes speak it to others pray it with others the second thing anticipate his reward let me get back to revelation 22 i love what he says there in verse 12 Behold, I come with me, and my recompense is with me. That means payment, that means reward, that means wages for services rendered. And I love how he, he frames it by saying, I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Whatever you've done, I can repay you. God will be no man's debtor. He is coming with his reward. I love that. Friends, I want to encourage you. In, in the Gospels, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says in chapter 6, verse 20, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Oh, hear me on this, friends. As Christians, 
we do not believe in a cosmic, eternal, celestial kind of communism where everyone for eternity will wear the same clothes, eats the same food, earns the same rewards, and we all lose our unique identities and gifts and abilities and share a bland, vanilla eternity. As you may have seen in your minds, we're all wearing white robes, playing harps, floating around on clouds. Mm -mm. No, the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches so often, and Revelation 22, 12 is just one text, that says we will be evaluated and rewarded for our service to God and the stewardship of our lives. Let me show you 2 Corinthians 5.10 where Paul says this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is their due for what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Let me be clear on this. This is not a judgment of your salvation. If you are in Christ, that judgment has passed. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. But Ephesians 2.10 tells us we were created to walk and do good works. And we will be evaluated on those works. The reason I stress this is because we rightly believe that salvation is available to all and it's nothing we do. But sometimes we translate that to also mean in the Christian life there's nothing to do. And we don't get rewarded for those things. And the Bible could not teach anything less than that. The Bible teaches abundantly. That there is work we have to do, and not all work is the same. Keep your finger in Revelation. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 3. I want you to see this again in the text. It's not our opinion. It's not what we want. It's what God's word teaches, and we see this clearly. Now, this is a principle all through the Old Testament and in the New as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. This is what Paul writes. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Verse 13, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So it's clear that God intends to reward his people. Friends, this makes total sense because God loves to be a blessing. My favorite verse in the Bible, Psalm 1611, he makes known to me the pathways of life. In his presence there is fullness of joy, at his right hand pleasures forevermore. Friends, Christianity does not teach a, an austerity or a life of self-denial and lack because that itself is inherently good, holy, and righteous not what Christianity teaches for that reason alone. Simply look at the miracles and signs of Jesus. Just as a thought experiment, think back on all the things they do. The, the miracles and signs of Jesus, they point to an abundance, a joy, a festivity of pleasure, fulfillment, and meaning. I don't know if you remember, but last summer we were teaching through one of the series on Jesus, and one of the high school students made a meme out of this. I was teaching on John chapter 2. What is Jesus' first miracle? And I said, it's kind of like launching your political campaign. You want that uh, inaugural announcement to kind of sh shape the trajectory of what you're about. And what was Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of John? At the wedding. And what did he do? He made amazing wine. And I said, Jesus keeps the party going. That's his campaign slogan. And some high school kid made a meme out of it, and I liked it, but that's true. 
Jesus isn't celebrating alcohol as if he's a slush. He's just saying, I bring the party. I bring the abundance. I bring the goodness. I keep the celebration going and going and going. Whether it's water to wine or sight to the blind or the dead to life or loaves and fishes overflowing. Every one of Jesus' miracles is a sign to what his kingdom is like. And it's not austerity. It's not lack or denial. It's abundance and pleasure and overflowing goodness. It's all in the Bible. But one of the reasons, I'm not saying the reason, but one of the reasons we are taught a life of self-control, self-denial, and discipline, one of the reasons is because the Lord knows that the things of this world will never satisfy. I'm pulling back some theology from the last several weeks because why? We were created with an insatiable desire. And he knows in this world we will destroy ourselves if we try to make the things that could never satisfy us do. It is only until that day when our insatiable desires meet the fount of inexhaustible desire, we can just take it all in. But until then, this world will destroy us if we're not wise. And so we're called to self-control and discipline and to say no so often. Notice in Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, Jesus does not say, do not have or seek treasure. As a matter of fact, go to Matthew chapter 6. We may go a little bit longer today, maybe a regular length sermon. Matthew 6, I want you to see this in the text. Matthew chapter 6, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking about laying up treasures in 19... Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? What? Why don't lay up treasures here? The next phrase, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. So it's just common sense. Why spend your life laying up treasures here when the things you get in this life, they're just going to be destroyed, they're going to rust, moths will come in, thieves will take them. Notice the next phrase, verse 20. But... In contrast, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? Where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And, and, and Jesus is the best psychologist. He knows why. Look at verse 21. He knows human, how humans work. For where your treasure is, guess what? That's where your heart and affections are going to be. So if you build up treasures here, not only is that a bad investment... But that's where your heart's going to be. And that's a bad investment. Jesus says, no, I want you to have treasures that will never be taken away. A great investment. And that's where your affections are always going to be. So he doesn't say don't have or seek treasure. But have the right kind of treasures. And when you do, work for those treasures. Anticipate the rewards thereof. And friends, we don't evaluate our work to God in the way we might in human, human metrics, so to speak. And if I can use the language of business, God is not a, a product-oriented manager. God is a process-oriented manager. And so don't judge what your Christian life looks like to somebody else around you because that's not how he works. He works on process, not product. Are you faithful? That looks different for everyone. You, you may have a friend who shares the gospel just once, and then 10 people get converted. You, by contrast, share the gospel 10 times and no one even listens to you. 
you're both being faithful. Are you bearing fruit of the Spirit? Maybe you meet a radical, a convert, a new, new convert, and he's radically, she's radically different overnight. And you've been a Christian for five years, and only recently do you stop dropping the F-bomb because you're upset. Now you just brood a little bit, but you don't cuss anymore. Friends, that's bearing fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't look the same, but God is not concerned so much about the product. He's concerned about the process. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 7 and 8. So neither, so let me give you the context here. The, the Corinthian church, they, they were like Christians gone wild, out of control. They were saying, oh, we're with Apollos. We like Apollos. That guy's handsome, charismatic. He, he just speaks well. And others said, no, 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 no. We're, we're not shallow like that. We like Paul. He may not be very articulate, and he's not very good looking, but he's so intellectually robust and a thinker. And they were having all these divisions. And Paul says, you guys are foolish. You don't get it. That's not how God's economy works. Apollos and I, we're workers in the same field. It doesn't matter. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. But only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. It's not about what it looks like. It's about the process. Jesus will give us rewards. But the greatest reward, let's go back to our text in Revelation 22. The greatest reward is right there in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they might enter the city by the gates. What's the greatest reward? In one sense, that's something that we all get. It's a baseline level of awesomeness, and every Christian gets what is that reward? The right to the tree of life and access to the new city. I want to make something really clear here just because I don't want to be misunderstood. That's not based on anything you and I have done. That's a baseline roar. We all get that there. We don't get that because of our good works. So the question we have to ask is, how do we get this right? How do we get that access? Again, the text gives us the answer. Blessed are those who wash their robes. And notice the next phrase, so that or in order that with the result that they have the right to the tree of life. And they enter the city. Because their robes have been washed. Well, we heard that expression once before in this book. Keep your finger in chapter 22. Go to chapter 7 in the book of Revelation. Chapter 7, you recall, this is the interlude scene when the seals are opening and the world's going to chaos. And the concern is, what is going to happen to God's people? And God says, don't worry, I've got them sealed. I'm going to take care of them. And so what John is seeing is all the redeemed giving praise to God. And I love verse 13, the angel says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, excuse me, one of the elders, to John, Who are these clothed in white robes, and where have they come from? Verse 14, I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The only time, the only time that that phrase appears in Revelation outside of this, what we just read in chapter 22. You guys know that hymn. Some of you are humming it in your head. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
Precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's gross, isn't it? <laughs> See, you, 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 if you've been a Christian too long, you don't even think about how gross that is. It's also paradoxical, just like our salvation. It's beautiful and gross. It's a paradox. Jesus' death that we just sing about in that song was bloody and brutal. His blood was shed. I can imagine the viscera of, of his intestines being exposed. Yet this is the blood that brought us Life, because he paid the price of a debt too great for anyone in this room to pay. A life debt. Friends, you ever get, you ever get blood on a garment? What happens? A stain. A stain. And, and, and blood, come, it takes forever to get blood out. And the great irony, the great irony, I'm, I'm looking at my hands because you've had the expression blood on your hands. I have had blood on my hands. Lots of it. And that's a, a story from another time, another sermon. But blood stains. But I love the image here where Jesus' blood wipes. It gets white and clean as snow. Have you seen blood do that? No. When you spread blood, it stains everything. But what the Bible is saying is where Jesus' blood goes, it gets white and beautiful. It's like a picture of the very gospel itself. The, a horrifying image makes everything beautiful that it touches. Only Jesus can do that. So who gets this great blessing? Anyone. Anyone who's been made clean by Jesus' work. The question then you have to ask is, well, then how do I get clean? How do I get clean? And it's not what we do. And, and I love how, again, man, Scripture's so thick. The, the metaphors are switching. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, how do we get clean? You say, you wash your robes. Well, how do I wash my, wash my robes? You come thirsty. I like that. Because I don't know if I can be good enough. Well, I know I can't be good enough, but I know I can be thirsty. I can't have enough good works, but I know I can be thirsty. In other words, thirst. I mean, what is a thirst other than recognizing what? You have a need right now, and, and you can't meet that need. Some, you need to have something. Our need to be made clean. And only Christ can do that. Okay, we're going to run a little late, so I'm just asking you to dial in with me. What I want to do now is show you, I want to build us a theology. So go to John's Gospel. Uh, John chapter 7. John chapter 7. And I want to build a theology of this concept of, of getting our, our, our robes washed clean. But what does that mean practically? So John chapter 7. And then if you're really, I, then I want you to find Ezekiel 36. I've been going through my daily Bible reading and I'm in Ezekiel. And so there's so much of it jumping out. And what I want to do is, is, is link these things. And I want you to keep your antennas open for the metaphors we've been hearing about. Washing your robes, coming thirsty, drinking water, all that, and new life, okay? John chapter 7, starting at verse 37. Then we're going to go to Ezekiel 36. Jesus says this in John 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, 
Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That imagery all through the book of Revelation, especially in this letter half. And then verse 39, I love John interprets scripture for us. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as of yet, the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And then go with me to Ezekiel 36. Starting in verse 25, this is what the Lord is speaking to the prophet. The Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my law. Come to Jesus thirsty, says in John 7, because then you can have the living water, which itself is a metaphor of the Spirit of God. And Ezekiel 36 says that the giving of the Spirit of God is the cleansing of our hearts, the washing of our robes because of what Christ has done. You want your robes washed so you can get access to the tree of life and get into the city. All you need to do is be thirsty. And Jesus says, come to me and I'll quench your thirst. I'm going to give you rivers of living water. And Ezekiel tells us what that actually means is the spirit of God coming upon you. And this spirit will make us walk in his ways, which, by the way, will make us long to do good works, which, by the way, piles up our eternal rewards, which, by the way, we anticipate as a means of learning to be patient and overcome and endure until he returns. It gets back to Jesus and his spirit and what he's doing. So we keep and honor his word, and we keep and honor his word. It changes us, and we can anticipate his reward at his return. And then third and finally, look forward to his return. Look at verse 17. Three times we are told to come. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who's thirsty, come. Let the one who desires water, desires take the water of life without price. The first two times, it is a prayer to Jesus. The spirit and the church say, come, Lord Jesus. And the third time is an invitation. If you want access to the tree of life, if you want to get into the city, you can come to me. Without price, for free. Friends, I know um, many of you are looking forward to Christmas in six days. And some of us still have some preparation for that time. It's going to be like a full court press, am I right? You've got a lot to do. Gifts to buy, gifts to wrap, cards to send out, groceries to buy. How much preparing would you need to do if you knew that in six days time would give way to eternity? How much preparation would there need to be done if you knew in six days life and everything you knew about it would be over? How much preparation would you require if you knew in six days we would all give an account on that great final day? Actually, that, that would be a blessing to know. Most people, many people, don't get that opportunity to know. A few years ago, a friend of Lori and I's uh, passed away in a sudden uh, tragic car accident up in Whittier. And at his funeral, a friend of mine said something so profound. He said this, speaking about our friend Phil. Phil lived his life in such a way that when the time came, all there was for him to do was die. No loose ends that needed tying up. 
No words that needed to be spoken or taken back. Forgiveness was granted and received. Grace was experienced and extended. Life was lived and stewarded well. And when his end came, all he needed to do was greet it. See, Phil lived longing for the return of his Lord with his reward. Phil just didn't know that the Lord would come back with his reward before he came back with everyone else's. Martin Luther, the Augustinian monk, famously said, there are only two days on my calendar. There are only two days I think about today and that day. I conclude with a, a story that's important about a middle-aged man who's standing one day reeling almost as if there was a physical blow to him as he heard the news that signified the end of an era of stability that lasted his whole life. All the structures that had surrounded him from infancy were about to be knocked away. And there were many contributing factors to it, no doubt. There was mass corruption in the society, the erosion of a firm governmental control or a firm government, a collapse in morals, soaring inflation. It seemed that his world was about to end. And when that kind of thing happens, many people were saying, this is it, revelation, the end of all is at hand. And yet, as Augustine, age 56, stood in Carthage and heard the news that Alaric, the leader of the barbarian Visigoths, had done the impossible, had done the unthinkable in the sack and destruction of Rome in 410 A.D., this middle-aged man at 56, he rallied. He rallied, and he said this in one of the most influential books in Western literature. There will be an end to every earthly kingdom. Writing to Christians, he said, you are surprised that the world is losing its grip and full of pressing tribulations. Do not hold on to the old man, the world. Do not refuse to regain your youth in Christ who says to you, the world is passing away. The world is short of breath. Do not fear. Thy youth shall be renewed as an eagle. Rome! Rome? That is hardly the focus of the Christian, Augustine insisted. Our gaze, he said, is to be centered upon another city, a city yet to come, an eternal city. And Augustine gave the last 16 years of his life to examine the profound question of what it's like to hope in the city of man, which fades away and is doomed to destruction, and to hope in the city of God that we've been studying about, that continues forever. His work, the city of God, has been a reference point for Christians for over two millennia. Christians living in an ever-changing world like our own. He who testifies to these things says... Surely, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. How much longer, Lord? <laughs> soon. Soon. Father, we are blessed beyond belief living here in the West in the 21st century here in South Orange County. We have our battles to fight, no doubt. Lord, would you be kind and gracious this Christmas season as our thoughts go to your coming, that our thoughts would also go to your second coming. 
and that we would remember with Augustine and the millions and millions of brothers and sisters who have gone before us, and even today who live in the persecuted church, that our city is not the city of man, but the city of God, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, and the new creation. Father, give us a longing for that home that we might do good for this world. It is only until we are captivated by the new creation that we can be any good to this creation. Father, help us to live as eternal city, citizens of that eternal city. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.